1: Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week our guest is New York Times reporter Adam Nagourney, author of the highly praised book The Times, the account of that newspaper over 40 years. Remember, we love taking your questions, so write in the politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at for next week's show. Now we're going to get to as many as we can, but don't forget to tell us where you're from. Please check out the links to our sponsors, The Washington Post, Henson Shaving, and ExpressVPN in our episode show notes. We thank you for supporting these sponsors because it really makes this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. James, if there was any doubt this week demonstrated the Republican Party is unfit to govern. They killed a bipartisan immigration bill that gave conservatives much of what they've been clamoring for for the last couple of years and provided Ukraine vital assistance under orders from Commandant Trump. Then Louisiana's own Speaker Mike Johnson proved that he couldn't count and failed an indefensibly stupid effort to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. The grounds, of course, were purely political. And then he tried to get too cute. And run a separate, simple aid to Israel. He lost then, too. And Johnson, by the way, also cut ties with those who are running his fundraising pack. Why? Commandant Trump told him to. The GOP's dear leader also, this keeps going, deep-sixed RNC chair McDaniel, who apparently wasn't sufficiently sycophonic. That was a big surprise to anyone who's listened to her. And the biggest enchilada was the unanimous and decisive decision of the U.S. Court of Appeals panel, including a Republican judge that Trump is not above the law and not entitled to immunity from criminal prosecution. The judicial panel clearly limited, cleverly limited actually, Trump's option of stretching out the case by appealing to the full appeals court, so it goes directly to the U.S. Supreme Court. That will be the ultimate test of just how political that high court is. This case really is quite easy. Read the New York Times annotation of the key points of this, and you'll see that's the case.
2: James? Yeah. I, I mean, that you put a guy in that has almost negligible legislative experience, he was a kind of backbencher Republican, sick for Bob Jinder in the Louisiana legislature. Uh, he was picked because they couldn't find anybody else. And this little prom date did not turn out very well for him. And I, I don't know if he could have been the Nancy Pelosi or James G. Blaine or Sam Rayburn and done anything about margins like this and Trump dominating everything. But he, he's just another fool who Trump is exposed. Uh, I don't. And I, I don't think Trump is. I think he's happy about it. <laughs> Honestly, I do. But this guy was never going to succeed, even if he would have been 50 times as savvy and clever as he is. It's an impossible job. But the question is, does it even affect anybody's view of them? Or does it enhance democratic chances of winning the House back? That's to be determined. Yeah, I
1: don't know. Uh, I would note that Nancy Pelosi had the same margins and uh, she never got humiliated like that. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to stay on the court of uh, the, the three judge panel, the Court of Appeals on the Trump uh, immunity case. Uh, n- no president has been as brazen or corrupt enough to claim he's absolutely above the law, but there is a precedent of sorts. Gerald Ford pardoned Richard Nixon, who accepted it to avoid criminal charges. So both Ford and Nixon understood the former president, a former president, can be prosecuted for crimes. And talking to the smartest lawyers I know, what the Supreme Court should do is just deny Trump's petition to hear this case and send it back. I don't think that's likely. But the real question is how much they want to try to stretch it out, how much the Alitos and Thomases presumably will try to stretch this thing out. Because if they can take it till June or even early July, that may make a trial really, really very difficult, which is, quote, a- course what trump wants and you know james it, the court can move with a m- remarkable speed when it wants to it took two weeks basically after the pentagon papers uh case uh for the court to hear it and decide it they can do the same
2: thing here now if they wanted to well i have a slightly different take and then i understand it's everybody's going to talk about just people should report by it but you should comment on it i tend to not And the reason is we have to get along with the business of beating Trump. If this happens, but it's right now being set up is this is our Hail Mary. If we get this, then we can win. If we don't, we probably won't win. And maybe that's true. But I don't have any, there are going to be so many briefs and Amicus cure and Friends of the Courts and and God knows what not. And stories that are go away on this, and what i 'm afraid that will happen is is they will slow walk it or do some shit like they do, and people 's morale will it 's already on the floor it 'll go through the floor so I, if it happens, great, but there 's nothing I can do about it and I, just as a matter of personal view. I'm, I'm, if it happens, it happens. I'm not going to count on
1: Well, it. I think it's a much bigger deal than that, but you can't do anything about it. You can't do it's anything about it. it. I can't do anything about it. I'm not even sure Trump can do anything about it. It's up to the Supreme Court. If a majority right, there right. decides, A, they want to just deny his petition, uh, which I think there's a case certainly to do, or if they want to you know, expedite it and hear it sometime in late March or late February, uh, early March, um, that 's a big difference if they on the other hand, as you say, if they decide to slow walk it uh he may get he may get off again
2: as I understand it if four people, four justices can accept cert, so even if they don 't have a majority, if four people say we're just we 're just going to go through like this through the regular order so right. we 'll schedule a hearing and we 'll do boom 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 and so you don 't have five that doesn 't matter he he 's escaped at that point and I don't know why that's. People don't think that's oh, a, a real possibility. And then it
1: depends on when they schedule
2: it. Yeah, and yeah, it just. But we're going to, into my own view, from from just my own mental health, which is something that you got to pay attention to with this guy in there. I, I can't make this the be all, to end all. If I do, we're asking somebody else to do something that. We as a country have, in my opinion, got to get into business and do it ourselves. But understand everything and every side. If it happens, it happens. There's so much commentary on this. I don't, you know, I don't know how much. Well, going
1: add. back to the um, immigration bill. Uh, look, Biden is being killed politically by the by the immigration. They've screwed it up, quite frankly, and uh, it's it's just it's a horrendous issue for them. I don't think this is a chance to turn it around, but I do think this is a chance, if they play it right and they don't try to play to the left, to at least cut the losses, minimize the damage a little bit by saying, hey, you know, we, we, however, belatedly, whatever they want to say, realize that the migrant problem is severe. They had a bill, a bipartisan bill that would have allowed us to really crack down, made asylum much more difficult. We were willing to sign it, and they said, I'm sorry, Donald Trump won't let us do it at the same time decided they cared more about Putin than Ukraine. Now, is that a winning issue? It's at least less of a losing issue if they do it right. I don't know if they will, but, um, you know,
2: time will tell. i got to confess, I-, I got a delayed flight coming in late last night to New Orleans. I got a big Monte lunch I have to go to, so I had not had time to read the— Morning, uh, computer press that, that I normally do, but we did get an email from our friend Roger Altman at Evercore, who said there was a story that said the White House was relieved that it didn't pass because the progressives would like it.
3: Uh, where? How? Why are these people
2: so? Worried about the quote, Jesse. He, he,
1: he, he, he wrote I mean, a memo to... actually that kind of explains okay. it a little. Uh, it a little bit better.
2: I mean, your overall point about the progressives, I was right on. Right, and I'm I'm slightly ill prepared this morning. I just but. Plane was delayed in Atlanta and the computer went down. I'll and take old, an ill-prepared prepared. James Carver over most prepared people any day of the week. I understand. But it, I, I do know this. They have an exaggerated view. And Jonathan Martin, our, our, our dear friend, our dear friend of this show, wrote a very important piece in Politico about how dangerous uh the left is, so I, I guess that figures somewhat in their calculation. But, man, whatever you get from these people, you pay such a price. You know, what you get from the 9% of them or 8% they are in the country, you pay a hell of a price. Of the well, other you 90%. should
1: do, and also what it does is uh, it uh, enables – uh, so-called uh, neutral critics, they're sometimes not so neutral, to be even-handed. Say, well, the Republicans have their problem on the right. The Democrats have their problem on the left. They're not equal. I mean, Democrats, you know, the left can drive you crazy, and I think they hurt more than they help. But it's not the same as uh, a mob insurrection or claiming the election was stolen or any of the other crazy things the Republican
2: right does. But uh, it's there, and it hurts. So, Yeah, yeah it's... You know, I, I just, for the life of me, it's hard to see a, a strategy emerging from the White House. All I know, if you look at the latest uh, NBC poll, I mean, I've seen bad it's polls before. Yeah, I don't I, I, know. one. And as you know, and as listeners of this podcast know, for many, many, many months, I've been on this this we need to try something different. This is not working, and I think he's losing a, a point a month. But the the most telling—I don't know, I've seen a number like this and on his job approval. It's sixteen strong approve and forty-nine strong disapprove. That that ratio, man, you don't have to be an experienced. Journalist, political operative, international consultant—to see that's not a good—that's not a good number. In fact, it's a horrifically bad number. It's
1: most depressing poll
2: uh, in a long time. It really was. And and you know, I, and it, 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 the, the problem is, well, it was seventy-two percent white. I mean, I'm going to make a prediction right now. This is I, to, in my world. This is a addiction. prediction. In my lifetime, I think I'm right. Clearly, in my time in national politics. The share of the white vote every four years in the United States goes down. I I think it was like 88 when Clinton won in 1992. I'll have to double check it, but it was really high. And it was 69 or something like that in 2020. The share of the white vote will go up for the first time in in my lifetime, and I'm going to be 80 in October, will actually go up. Well, that's in bad news for Democrats,
1: if you're right. Uh, no,
2: 20, no, it ain't good news. No Let me tell you, across the board, it's not bad. good news. Um, and I just saw a poll in Ohio where 28% of the black males were voting for Trump. And th- the problem there is the progressives. It's like Nina Turner and, and the whole goddamn Washington NPR, don't, you know, don't eat hamburgers, don't drink beer, don't watch football, don't smoke dope. And those are kind of four popular things about, among young black males. And they're tired of being lectured to by the, the left wing of the Democratic Party that lectures everybody. And they just—they're just, they're sick of it. I mean, you—you—you you, you know, black guy in Cleveland, and you—you you know, repairing tires all day. Shit, you want to watch football? You don't know, want some preachy somebody telling you to eat your vegetables and you should be watching gymnastics. That's number. Okay, two.
1: don't eat your vegetables and uh, you know, watch the Super Bowl <laughs> <laughs> on Sunday. Come on. No, we ain't gonna, and we ain't Joe Biden, preach to you, you know, drinking figure out bed. something to come back. All right.
2: You know when you, you talk about American newspapers, and now they're so much more than newspapers. They're like you know they're top in my, I don't know, bookmarks or whatever you say, whatever Allie puts on my fucking computer. But Washington Post is right there at the top, and some of the people they have are about. Really, really insightful, and I, I find it indispensable, actually.
1: Well, I do, too, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I've been a Washingtonian for over a half century, so I start every morning reading The Washington Post. But if you live out in Kansas City or you live, you know, up in, in Albany or down in, um, in Tucson, The Washington Post still is, a, is really, really, you know, important for you. Because when life moves fast, knowing what's going on in the world and in your industry is more important than ever. So get the latest and stand forward by subscribing to The Washington Post. The speed of news never stops, James, and quality reporting is critical. That's why The Washington Post is one of our must-reads for understanding how current events impact us, our work, and our families. Now, this podcast is sponsored by The Washington Post, where you can go deeper into the news that matters to you the most. Their journalists bring you the facts and clarity about Capitol Hill, the economy, climate change, foreign policy, and everything else you care about. Dan Balls, Karen Tumulty, Ashley Parker, just to name a few, do not get any better than that. So whether it's breaking news updates, the most comprehensive political and international coverage, thought-provoking opinions, or even dinner recipes, a Washington Post subscription has something for every reader. Every day, there's stories that will explain the world, teach you something new, and inspire
2: you. Who are your favorite writers at the Post, James? I've just listed a couple of them. My- I'll I tell you what, maybe you, like, you're like you more on the journalism side. I'm, I'm a little bit more on the opinion side. The, the guy that I re- have read every time he's written anything since, I guess, the late 80s is E.J. Dion. And E.J.'s a little bit of a, you know, he's ethnic, Catholic, you know, from Massachusetts. But I, I it, he, he writes with passion and clarity about a lot of issues I care about. And he's been around a long time. I, I I find his stuff immensely informative. I actually I disagree with him on a lot, but but George Will can still. Well, he sure that can. Guy can put a sentence together. <laughs> you know, Sometimes I have to go to my thesaurus but uh, <laughs> our dictionary. But he sure can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good for my vocabulary. <laughs> i you know, keep, my mother used to say, look it up in a dictionary. That's the greatest thing about the computer. When work. George writes a column <laughs> about four or five words. What the fuck is he talking about? But it, 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 it you can be informed and educated. Yeah, I at the would same add time.
1: David Vondrle and Max Boot to that. All directed by my old colleague David Shipley. I would point out in the editorial page. Look, the Post sleekly design app makes it easy to stay up to date on the latest news. Save stories to your reading list and follow your favorite authors. You can even listen to their articles when you're on the go. You name it, they cover it. Climate, culture, crossroads, cooking, and that's just the letter C. Recently, we've been loving their Inspired Life section that documents human moments and acts of kindness. And their medical reporting, health reporting is great. We're convinced it's the perfect antidote to doom scrolling. Remember, a Washington Post subscription makes it easy to access quality, trustworthy journalism, and it's affordable. You know, this is true wherever you are. Go to WashingtonPost.com warroom war room to subscribe for just 50 cents a week your first year. That's 80% better than their typical offer. So this is truly a steal. Once again, that's WashingtonPost.com warroom war room to subscribe for just 50 cents a week. For your first year, you also can find the link to great journalism in our show notes. Hey, James, our guest is Adam Nagourney, a longtime top reporter for The New York Times, who has written a fascinating book on the 40 years at the Times from 1976 through 2016. You know, the Times is probably the most influential paper in the world. And Adam tracks it through scandal, through extraordinary journalism, vicious infighting, and the transformation to the digital age that saved the paper. Adam, I loved reading the book, uh, and I think it would be be fascinating even for those not in the business. Two larger-than-life figures. Abe Rosenthal and Hal Raines, both executive editors of the New York Times, both brilliant journalists, but bullies who, while directing journalistic excellence, intimidated and alienated much of their staff. Tell us about
0: them.
3: Yeah. Uh, first of all, thanks for having me on the show. They are of different errors, but in some ways similar. I mean, I think they had very strong ideas about what the newspaper should look like. They had strong standards. Um, breaking stories, being on top of the news, being ahead of the news. I think they both had personalities that would not survive in the culture that we live in today. Starting with Rosenthal, I mean, Rosenthal was really, as you said, a bully. And he was mean to people and dismissive of people that he did not like. Um, I came across a lot of documents that showed this. People were afraid of him. Um, I don't want to take away out from his journalistic mm-hmm. excellence, because I do think he was an excellent journalist over the years, but he was just a tough guy. Um, and I, I get the comparison with Howell Rains. I think that's very, very true. Howell also, I think, was very demanding and did not put up with fools and definitely had his favorites, I think normally based on quality or what he perceived as quality. But again, he could be dismissive of people and include some people, not others. And as, as you can read in the book, he eventually was forced to leave the paper because of that.
1: Well, Hal, you know, I knew Hal pretty well, Uh and he, he, as you say, he was a—he is—he's a a brilliant journalist. Uh, But if you look at that legacy. Uh, it's going to be mes- best remembered less for the great coverage of 9/11 than for the scandals involving Judy Miller, whose fake stories played a, a role in leading America to a disastrous Iraq war, yep. terrible consequences, and Jason Blair, a fabulist, whose prominent assignments and stories—you uh, know—he made up. Uh, these weren't medium-sized mistakes; these were massive disgraces.
3: I mean, I think it's disqualifying in the end, and what's sort of tragic about it, if I may is that Howell Rains was an extraordinary journalist. He was a great writer. He wrote great stories. He had a, I think he had a really strong nuisance. He had a vision of what he, where he thought the paper should go. But those are, as I said, disqualifying episodes. J- Jason Blair and Judy Miller. They, I think they brought a lot of tarnish on the paper. Um, I think the paper hasn't quite gotten past either one of them, frankly. And you know when they sort of cropped up uh, how Rain had to go. So I do think it was, you know, ultimately, I hate to say it, a failed editorship um, with someone who came in there with the highest of uh, ambitions and standards.
1: And the support of the publisher, uh, Young Sulzberger. Absolutely. Then Young yeah, Sulzberger, no longer Young. Yeah. You, you know, on the other side, you do. Tell, some of the coverage was extraordinary. The coverage of nine eleven. Uh, mm-hmm. On their turf was extraordinary. Some of the revelations about foreign governments spying illicitly uh, on American citizens, you know, much of its foreign coverage, uh, it was, it was you know, as good as anyone, if not better. And there's just
3: extraordinary talent uh, at that place. I mean, I think that's what made it such an interesting book to write about, an interesting topic to take on. There is an extraordinary amount of talent. And I think that overall, the coverage by the paper over the decades has been uh, just exceptional and just great, as you said. But it's still with highly flawed people. And I think that for the most part, they are dedicated to making the New York Times as good as possible, but they make mistakes and they have egos and they just screw stuff up. And the paper succeeds, I would argue, despite the occasional, I don't want to use the word foibles because it suggests these aren't minor flaws, but despite the flaws of some of its players. And I think that's what makes it such an interesting place to write about that it just keeps on succeeding and growing even in the midst of all these mistakes and stumbles over the years it sure
2: does james so so adam uh first of all in terms of how i'm reading or read his book on the uh, union regiment from alabama and it's richly resourced well written yep uh and i'm a a little bit identify with that because I'm Louisiana and my great-grandfather uh, great, I mean great, not great-great, great-grandfather great was a uh, Austin the Union Army and was a Republican member of the Louisiana legislature. So I'm fascinated by the question of, of pro-Union people in, in in the southern United States. But it, you know, to go back to I'll talk about this, it, this, this was the view during the, the Clinton troubles. That the Times was traumatized by Watergate in the post and that their big bet was they, and this is richly believed by everyone and richly believed by me that they saw the Clinton scandals as their way back to Pulitzer and, you know, the post has a president of notch on their bedpost and the times wanted what do you think we're crazy? Uh,
3: I don't think you're crazy. No, I never say you're crazy. I do think... Okay, I understand. But I think you have your finger on it. I mean, it's correct that the paper, the Times, was really traumatized by what happened with Watergate. And I don't think they ever really got over that. Um, I think that influenced its coverage of stories over the years. They didn't want to get beat again or left behind again. I'm not sure that the Clinton um, example is the best one, because obviously President Clinton did do some things that were... Probably not ideal, but it is another example of that. Um, but you know, remember, there's a lot of years between Watergate and 1992. So I think the top, you know, the kind of behavior that you're talking about, which I do think is true, um, I don't think it was quite as strong in 1992 as it would have been in, say, 1976. But it did, you know, James, it did turn the paper around. I mean, I think. It made it more aggressive. It, you remember that also that Watergate happened just, I think, four years out. Do you remember after the Pentagon Papers? It was, so the, it was, it was Com- three
1: years, right? Exactly,
3: three years, right? So the Times right. was feeling on top of the world after the Pentagon Papers. This is a little bit before the scope of my book, but um, and then all of a sudden they got hit by Watergate, and you know you still find people talking about at the paper talking about how embarrassing that was because the paper is obviously competitive and very competitive with the Washington Post. And that was, a, you know, I would argue that was a pretty clean beat on the part of the Post. So, Adam, during this
2: period of time, as, as I recall, mm-hmm. I guess it was during the financial crisis, basically the, the Times had to go to Carlos Slim and get a payday loan Yeah, to stay open. Is that fourteen percent? Exaggerating that, or, or is something like that actually happening?
3: No, that right. I think it was fourteen yep. percent. The paper was really, really struggling financially and had to go and take the phone from him, which, as I recall, they repaid early. What are the what are the sort of stories here? What are the sort of recurrent themes of the times over the past forty years? Is it goes through these financial crises and. I would argue emerges stronger after them. When I first started writing this book back in 2015, 2016, I had no idea how it was going to end up. I had no idea if the New York times would exist in the form that we all know it then or today, because, you know, circulation, revenue was dropping. Advertising was dropping circulation. Print circulation was dropping. Um, and you look at it now and it's a real success story. Um, one reason why I think over the years that the paper has continued to survive these crises is when they when they come into these periods, they tend not to make cuts in the newsroom, right? Um, I don't wanna say never, but they do they tend not to. And the old the old sort of theory here, and I think it was Abe Rosenthal who said this, so other people take credit for the quote, is you wanna put more tomatoes in the soup. In other words, you wanna even during a time of financial crisis or difficulty, you want to make the product, I use the word product advisory, better so that people will buy it. I think that's what the Times, in particular the Sulzberger family, has done again and again over the years. Um, so the Carlos Slim thing, that was obviously a, a time of downturn, but it didn't last for that long. And I think overall the paper had figured out a way to become a successful financial organization.
2: I'll give one more and turn it back to Al. And this is a little bit past your, 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 your yearly coverage, but you've worked there and you, you observe it yeah. and you're close to it. And, you know, the whole James Bennett the fiasco, mm-hmm. and I, I and I believe this to be true. I'm not, this is not supposition that left-leaning people in the times exert a whole lot of influence on what gets covered and not covered. Mm-hmm. Is, is, that a, is that a correct observation? That
3: the- I, I think that one of the struggles that the paper has always gone through, you see it with Abe Rosenthal dealing with what he thought were leftist journalists covering the 1968 Democratic Convention, through now, is that newsrooms tend to be younger and more liberal. Um, and that can influence what it's covered or how it's covered. I think the big sort of struggle that the publisher now and the executive editor has now, have now is to balance off these forces, to try to remain true to what people see as the New York Times mission. I'm not going to use the word objective, but I'm, you know what I mean by that. And, I understand. Just, right, yeah. and still accomplish that. And, I think that the period, including the the event involving James Bennett, right, I think this is a period of turmoil, and I think that the next book, whoever does it, and it won't be me, I don't think, unless one of you guys want to do it, will have to deal with how A.G. Sulzberger and Joe Collins sort of deal with these countervailing forces. Um, I'm a little reluctant to get to draw judgment when we're right in the middle of it. My sense is that the fever has lessened a little bit, since when James got forced out because of, as you said, an uprising from some liberal members of the news organization, but it still exists, and I think, you know, it's part of this newspaper and every media organization dealing with covering the world in the age of Trump. It's a polarizing and difficult time. So I, I don't mean to not answer your question, but I think we don't really. Right. No I was saying I thought yeah.
2: I it was about us, good. Yeah. to
1: go. Good. Is good. No. We didn't you know, let me say with the Bennett thing. I think that James Bennett that edited that column that he published by Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton, there were a couple of yep. flaws in it. It was certainly defensible to run it. It was outrageous mm-hmm. that he got fired for for that. I mean, that was just simply outrageous. Now he then wrote a really long piece in the Economist about the times. Mm-hmm. Let me letter, right? let me. I thought it was in The
3: Economist. Oh, maybe you're right. I apologize. No, it doesn't matter. Yeah.
1: But let me give you my take yeah. on that, and then you know a yeah. lot more than I do. I, I thought he made some good points, but I had some real problems. Number one, he conflated the editorial page with the news pages. The publisher can mm-hmm. put whatever the hell he wants in the editorial page. If he wants to have it all left-wing or all right-wing, I mean, the Times, whatever flaws it has, has more diversity in its editorial page than, say, the Wall Street Journal does. So mm-hmm. I I'm not. I don't conflate the two. <laughs> and I think he's right that when it comes to stories about culture and things of that sort, gays the Times is very left-wing, very woke. But what Mm -hmm. I know a little bit about, which is Washington coverage, and I think that whether it's Maggie Haberman or Carl Hulse or Jim Tankersley or any number, uh, David, um, um, yeah, I, I, I think they're terrific reporters. I don't see a woke element there. So I think it's not as easy as Bennett describes it although I think it's clear in cultural coverage.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's what I was saying before, that I think we're in the middle of this, so it's hard to sort of figure out where it's going and exactly where we are. But your examples out of the Washington Bureau, I think, are exactly right. I think the coverage out of the Washington Bureau is really extraordinarily and really straight down the middle. And I'm not going to say that from day to day that you don't see um, sort of examples of, woke influence coverage, right? Of course you do. But I do think that overall the paper is working this stuff through. Um, I thought that I, I found James essay really compelling. Um, the only question I had about it is whether it is it, whether it's possible to draw the kind of long-term conclusions that he did, in other words, to say that what happened at that moment reflects a redefining of the New York Times and how it deals with these kind of forces. Maybe, I just don't think we know. Um, and I think you're right about being careful not to conflate the editorial pages, or I guess they call it the opinion pages now, right? right. With the news pages, it's a publisher's paper, right? I mean, that's the bottom line. Like, A.G. Sulzberger, before him, Arthur Sulzberger, before him, Punch Sulzberger, they could do whatever the heck they wanted to do, right? The thing is, did they influence... it Did they... I don't want to say metal because it's still their paper, but did they get involved with the news coverage? Um, and from my research... For the most part, with some exceptions, for the most part, they did not. Right? I agree. That's different. You know, right. Yeah, that's different, right? That's different. I would but just, at the end of the day, you get yeah,
1: sorry. No, I was going to say, when you talked about the great Washington that some of those great investigative reporters, I mean, Charlie Savage and Mark yeah. uh, Mazzetti, I mean, that is really a talented group of people. So I, I you know, I know, and, and I don't know if they know what woke is, but, um, <laughs> you know, you, <laughs> I think that's right. you mentioned the Salzburgers. And yeah. I'm primarily thinking the two Salzburgers in your era was Punch Salzberger, who was sort of a, a larger-than-life figure, mainstay of New York society in the journalism yeah. business. And then his goofy kid, Pinch, as they called him at the time, <laughs> uh, took over. Uh, it, but he was pretty prescient. I mean, twenty over 20 years ago, he said against his, father wishes, his father's wishes, you know, we have to, we have to turn to digital.
3: And man, that saved the paper, Adam. Yeah, I completely agree with you. When I when I started this book, a friend of mine said to me, you are going to have to deal with the legacy of Arthur Sulzberger Jr. And because of his sort of personal effect, as you said, but also because he had to get rid of two executive editors, right? That's pretty big mistakes, right? Howell raised and Jill Abramson. Um, but I think at the end of the day, when I finished the book, in my opinion, um, Arthur Sulzberger Jr., is kind of a hero, right? He saved the paper. He was, even as a young man, he was very forward-looking about how the world was going digital. And I think there are two reasons for this, which I write about in the book. One is, he's a former wire service guy, right? So like, he didn't have the kind of... adherence that you and I might have to the idea of write a story, file it at 4 o'clock, it'll appear at 7 the next morning. He's like, write a story and it posts, which is basically what we do now. But the other thing is, and I'm not being flipped, he's a Star Trek fan, so he would talk about, even 30 years ago, I don't care if we have to beam this information into their heads, our readers' heads, we're going to get it to them. And I think he did a really good job of sort of setting the lodestar, I think that's the right cliche, right, of where the paper should be going. And Finally, you know, he was the one ultimately that made the decision about doing the second paywall, right? And it could have failed; it did not. And I think if it failed, it would have been on his shoulders. He would have ruined the New York Times or whatever. But I think the fact that it's such a success and that, you know, I think the paper's up to what ten point five million digital subscribers now. Unbelievable! And he deserves yeah. to do a big, unbelievable, right? A victory lap yeah. on that. So I, I agree with that. He was a complicated figure to write about for the reasons you said, but I, I walked away from that having immense respect for him and what he
1: accomplished. Well, I, this is a personal side you don't have to comment on. Uh, Joe Abramson is one of my dearest friends. I think she really, she had her flaws for sure, but she was a brilliant editor and I think she got screwed. But that's just, that's my personal observation. Mm-hmm. But you know, <laughs> I mean, the infighting, at the New York Times makes politics look tame sometimes by comparison. I mean, for all of its greatness, there was so much pettiness, so much ego, so much knife-stabbing. Man, it doesn't sound like a very pleasant place to work, Adam.
3: I mean, I think that's true. I think that's always the case when you put a lot of really talented, ambitious, insecure, dare I say, people in a room, um, which is often a zero-sum kind of atmosphere, and it can be really difficult, right? um I think that's particularly the case with editors. I never wanted to become an editor. If you look at editors, it's really up and out, and we've seen really extraordinarily talented journalists, as you said, who've been forced out of the paper just because of that's the way the world works, but it's you know it's really, really complicated um it's really competitive and complicated, and I think a large reason for that is. There are layers and layers of redundancies of talent in the New York Times. And I, I would guess in the other places do, Wall Street Journal, yeah. Washington Post, at least until the past couple of years, I would say. Um, I'm not sure anymore. Um, so, like, if somebody flames out, there's somebody right behind them, maybe equally as ta- talented, maybe even more talented, ready to step in. Is that a healthy work environment? I don't know. But for being a reporter, it's certainly a great place to work.
1: Well, I, you know, I, when I was at the Wall Street Journal, I named a new editor, and I suggested he have lunch with David Rogers, a brilliant reporter who was mm-hmm. uh, who, could be, who could be difficult. And he went and asked him, and Rogers <laughs> looked at him and said, I don't eat with editors, <laughs> which I think is a view that wow. more than a few wow. reporters have. Uh, let me do one final thing, and I'll turn it back to uh, back to James. Um, did you get any blowback? I mean, you really were— you, you did a terrific reporting job. There were things that all kinds of people ate, you know, Sellsberger and Rains and everybody else must have cringed. Did you get
3: any blowback? Um, nothing major. Let me tell you why. I'll tell you what the left major stuff was in a second. I think part of it is I... My feeling on a book like this is you only get to do it once, right? And my publisher basically said, take the time you need. You know, I I had a fact checker. I checked stuff again and again. I ran stuff past people, right? I ran, which I would never do in a newspaper story, but I ran texts past people to make sure I had it right. I didn't want people to be surprised. So- I was really nervous the way I'm nervous when I you know file a difficult story that there would be blowback there was nothing that I consider serious or devastating no correction you know except for really minor stuff um one of the executive editors had who was not Joe someone else who had who said he was overall okay with the way he was covered had two criticisms which I'll share with you one I agree with what I don't one is he thought I should have written about WikiLeaks and how that sort of changed the New York Times culture, that the New York Times is working with an outside organization to cover stuff. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's a really good point. I wish I had thought of that. Um, The other was, he said that he thought that I didn't quite get across the joy of working at the New York Times on big stories. And I think I did when you read the use the word joy in this context. When you read the chapters on September 11, when you read the chapters on the explosion of the Challenger, I think I get across why it is that people want to work at the times and why it becomes a mission bigger to themselves. that it's not just all inviting and in who's up and who's down, blah blah blah. but it's also like you know the paper is covering really important things that I think is generally dedicated, and I'm not saying you're good to get it right all the time, but dedicated to getting it right. And I think that's really
2: important. I, I think you captured that, James. So, Adam, Harvard University did, did a report during mm-hmm. in 2016 campaign. The New York Times wrote more stories about Hillary's emails than Trump's business mm-hmm. practices. Did, does anybody at the time said, you know, maybe we, may, maybe we got disoriented here and we were covering the wrong thing too much?
3: You know, I think that um, I think that if you talk to Dean Baquet. He, who's the executive editor mm-hmm. at the time? Who I bet you have talked
2: to. Um, I and I'm going to see him in March, and trust me, I'll bring it up.
3: Okay, well, I think I'm going to see you there too at the book festival, right? Um, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, good.
3: So, um, I, you know, I think if you go back and look, there was a lot of coverage of the emails, right? You and I can argue about whether that was a legitimate story or not. Whatever. I don't think
2: there's much argument now, but go ahead. Uh,
3: um, but there was one day when there were three front page above the fold, or there was top of the page stories, when Comey reopened the investigation. It's hard to look back at that and say it deserves three stories. Um, you know, I think that the paper came under a lot of criticism for that, and I think kind of correctly. Um, yeah. I write about that a bit in the book, but I think more and more there's a real legacy to that.
2: Well, okay, so, uh, you know, save me a place on your dance card for the book festival.
3: Uh, yeah. So, uh,
2: I guess one of the, uh, there's two, like, I, I don't know, we call them Louisiana gefunk the moments. One of them was involved with James Bennett, where, but my understanding, that the editor did not want to fire him. But somebody said that they felt uh, unsafe in a newsroom with James Bennett as if James Bennett would be a threat. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's almost, that's right up there when Bob Woodward, who I love is a good friend of mine, said that he was threatened by, by someone Spurling. in the Obama White House by, by, by some book. <laughs> <laughs> Spur- I, I was in my car on Chappatula Street. I had to pull off the street because I was like, "Like, is going to get you with that, you know, those leaky pen in his top pocket. But two people I can assure you that no physical danger to anybody as oh, James <laughs> Bennett and Gene Sperling. <laughs> I mean, you can't beat that. Man, I, uh, I loved having you on the show. I can't wait to see you uh, in New Orleans. I think this is a terrific book because you, you can't just cover modern America in the times for whatever it is, and you can call it a lot, and a lot of names would be accurate, but it's just one of the leading in quote, institutions, unquote, in the United States and has been for a long time. So c- congratulations Thank on you. a really, really important book.
1: I second everything James just said. You know, just one, one quick story. You know, I thought Abe Rosenthal died, I think, 2006. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his probably his greatest accomplishment was the Pentagon Papers. Uh, that was the last. Thing. I think that's and then, right, yeah. Yeah. And then Spielberg and Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep did a movie about it. And it was focused almost exclusively on The Washington Post. Someone should have checked his tombstone that day because that would have driven him crazy.
3: Uh, can you imagine? <laughs> I, I can't even imagine. I just saw what I saw. I can't even imagine it. Thank oh God, God. He wasn't alive to see that. <laughs>
1: Adam, you have done, this is a tour right. de force. It's a great book, uh, whether you're into journalism or not. The Times, all the scandals, all the great journalism, all the infighting. It's fabulous. Adam Nagorney, thank you for being with us. And everybody out there, yeah. read this book, The Times.
2: Yeah. Terrific, man. Congratulations. And uh, I, I think this is the indispensable book, not just in American journalism, but American history. I really mean
3: that. Thank you for thank having you, me ma'am. on. I really appreciate you having me on, those kind words about the book. That was great.
2: Thank you. Take it from the raging Cajun. The Henson razor will give you the best shave you've ever gotten in your entire life. You know, it it is really important because it's something you do every day. I mean, maybe you go on vacation and you're in the Bahamas, uh, you know, and you want to get a Miami Vice look or whatever, you, you, you don't shave. But I'd say 365 days in a year, I shave 350 of them. And it's a... When you think about it, it's a it's very affordable. B it's space age technology, and it's it, it just has a difference. You know, after you get a good shave, I love just you know feeling my face. how much better. It feels. Uh, this is a terrific product. That's Henson shaving product, right? Right. It's Henson shaving, and and it was created by the company that was a NASA contractor.
1: Yeah, you know, so so yes. yeah, James, you're absolutely right. If you're trying to look good and feel on top of your game, you, you know, you do need the best razors. So when you meet Henson Shaving, Henson Shaving is a family-owned, as you said, aerospace parts manufacturer that has made parts for the International Space Station and Mars Rover. And now they're bringing precision engineering to your shaving experience. Now think of razor blades like a diving board. The longer the board, the more wobble. The more wobble, the more nicks, cuts, and scrapes. A bad shave isn't a blade problem. It's an extension problem. And you need ultimate precision by using aerospace-grade CNC machines. Henson makes metal razors that extend just 0.00. One, three inches. That's less than the thickness of a human hair. Just think about that. That means a secure and stable blade with a vibration-free shave. Now, we've been around for a long time, and you're never going to get a better shave. That's not all. Henson Shavings Razor has built-in channels to evacuate hair and cream to make clogs impossible. Henson Shaving is about the best razor, not the best razor business. That means no plastics, no subscriptions, no proprietary blades, and no plan obsolescence. Plus, they're affordable. The Henson Razor works with standard dual-edge blades to give you that old-school shave with the benefits of new-school tech. And it's only about three to five bucks per year to replace the blades. We all can use that these days. Henson handles it all. You know, the first shave is going to make you feel 20 years younger, and the decision and durability is unmatched. So it's time to say no to subscriptions and yes to a razor that'll last you a lifetime. Visit hensonshaving.com slash PWR to pick the razor for you and use the code PWR and you'll get two years' worth of blades free with your razor. Just make sure to add them to your cart. That's 100 free blades when you head to h-e-n-s-o-n-s-h-a-v-i-n-g dot com slash PWR. Use the code PWR. You can also find the link in our show notes. Hey, now for the outrage of the week. America First Legal, headed by Stephen Miller, the immigrant-hating Trump acolyte, is challenging the National Football League, a private organization's policy, of trying to hire more minority coaches under the so-called Rooney Rule. They charge this punishes other possible candidates, whites, as if they haven't had a chance. The facts are over 60% of pro players... Both football players are minorities. And not long ago, there were almost no head coaches of color. With a prodding of the Rooney rule, next year, nine NFL head coaches will be minorities, six Blacks. The implicit charge by Miller's group is that black coaches really aren't up to it. He he doesn't know much about the game or has never heard of Mike Tomlin, head coach of the Pittsburgh Steelers, owned by the Rooney family. Tomlin has won over 63% of his games, gone to 11 playoffs and won a Super Bowl. Try to find another coach, not named Belichick or Andy Reid, with that record. Tomlin is black. Miller is following in the footsteps of Rush Limbaugh who over 20 years ago belittled the idea of a black quarterback in the NFL. They just weren't intellectually up to it. As we prepare for hopefully a great Super Bowl Sunday, recall two weekends ago when the Kansas City Chiefs defeated the Baltimore Ravens, a contest between the two best quarterbacks in pro football, Patrick Mahomes
2: and Lamar Jackson. You got it both are black. So, one of the that uh, that uh, said so- you know, based on this stupid Taylor Swift stuff, that one of the secrets to a happy life is to be amused, not to get mad at fools. And as my daddy told me when I was a little, boy, I got mad at somebody for being stupid. And he said, Son, living in Louisiana, being mad at stupidity is like being mad at grass. And I think that that makes a, a calmer life. There's something, <laughs> you just can't, you got to believe this. A guy in the Daily Beast, Michael Ian Black, points out that Kellyanne Conway wrote an op-ed that the New York Times took about who Trump should be pick for vice president. And I'm pretty sure the intent of the piece was that he should pick Kellyanne Conway. And. In black, August Conway is shameless enough to unlock the keys to Trump's quote, syphilitic mind, unquote. I think we're getting some traction <laughs> out there with a combination of all out flattery and interest. And then she goes on to, <laughs> honestly, You're I'm, there, I'm, I'm not stop. kidding you here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding you. And uh, Kellyanne says that Trump famously treats women very well is the same guy, <laughs> found out he raped a woman. I mean, and the, the stunning thing is they don't even remotely see the hypocrisy in this.
1: No, James, you're wrong. They don't care.
2: Oh, okay, but yeah. whatever. You would, you would never, ever. Ever, if, if the person you work for and every person has weakness, you, you generally don't go right to the most famous weakness and the most current weakness that the person has. And I, 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 and this is where I think the Times should have published that. Because to the few people of me that really are amused by fools, this is all world goddamn fooldom that with a straight face. Good <laughs> Trump treats women. <laughs> I mean, if I go back, in every misogynistic, he raped that woman. Oh, my God. It, it, it just, please, people, if you want to be a happier life, you want to sleep better, Uh, you want to be more relaxed, you don't want to throw shit at walls, you you just got to laugh at this. This this, this even tops the Taylor Swift They give
1: you plenty of material.
2: Oh, God, it just never stops. Honestly, there's nothing better than to be protected by Express VPN. You think about how many people I know that have been hacked. I literally I could I don't want to name names because I don't want anybody to I don't guess there's some expectation of confidentiality there, but I I know more than a few people uh, who who've been hacked and we will all be, and the truth of the matter is we're all hacked because anytime time that you search for you know as I've said before if you search for you know best hotels in Rome they'll flood you with you know oh you hear from you know the Hassler yes. and you know the Dan and uh, everything in, in between. So it, it, it's, it's important if you don't want to be pestered, but it's really important if you don't want your, all the stuff that you have on your computer to be known to God knows who, probably the Russians. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Look, it's, it's, it's really important. It's dangerous online and using the Internet without ExpressVPN. It's like driving without car insurance. Don't take the risk. If you didn't know every time you connect to an unencrypted network, think cafes, hotels, as James mentioned, airports, any hacker on the same network can gain access to your personal data, financial details, and even passwords. For them, it's not even a challenge. A smart 12-year-old can do it. Even worse, your information is worth up to $1,000 on the dark web. That's why we love the peace of mind you get from using ExpressVPN. Express ExpressVPN is like online insurance. It protects you from catastrophic, life-changing risk by creating a secure, encrypted connection between your device and the internet. Hackers can't penetrate it. And it's so secure it would take a supercomputer over a billion years, a billion years. We're not even going to be covering campaigns then, James, to get past ExpressVPN's encryption. Even better, it's so easy to use. James and I were talking about protecting ourselves within minutes of hearing about it. All you have to do is fire up the ExpressVPN app and click one button to get protected. Plus, it works on all devices, so you can feel safe on your phone, laptop, tablet, and other tech and stay secure no matter where you are or what you're doing. Especially with frequent travel, you know, you can, as James going to test. you can feel so much better using ExpressVPN. It, it makes you comfortable working in public places, so you never have to rush home when something urgent happens. And with grandchildren, that happens these days. We feel secure knowing that ExpressVPN protects them too. There's nothing more important than protecting your family. So secure your online data today by... Visiting expressvpn.com slash war room. That's vpn. dot com slash war room. And you get an extra three months free. ExpressVPN dot com slash war room. You also can find the link in our show notes. Okay, now for the Terrific questions we get every week from our listeners. The hardest job I have is culling them down to six or seven. We got two about um, Nikki Haley, James. Nancy in Philadelphia uh, says she has no champ, chance of beating Trump. So, what's the real strategy here? Uh, you know, she's staying simply as a backup if something happens to him. Uh, why is she doing it? And uh, likewise, we have a question. Um, uh, another question from uh, Casper, from Gina in Casper, Wyoming, who says, "Isn't it likely that Haley staying in the race is actually helping Trump? If he was, if it was wrapped up already. Wouldn't he, wouldn't he be out of the news?"
2: Well, I, I guess if anyone knew she was still in the race, and voted, I think none of the above beat a two to the yeah, one. Yeah, but she in finished second to
1: none of the above.
2: Yeah, <laughs> I mean, look, do, do I think it, it would Trump rather see her out? Yes, and I should have. If I come back, I, it's something else. I want to come back as a billionaire Republican donor because this is the stupidest class of people in the United States. I don't know how they made a billion dollars, but it, 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 they keep pump, pumping money into this. There's something something really stupid about these people. I, I, it's inexplicable. But I think none of the above got 62 and she got 30 or something. It, it She likes being in the light, so
1: what can you say Well, here's a question from Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. Chad says, if Trump becomes ill or dies or is jailed, which won't happen, he won't won't be jailed before the election. uh, But if the others happen uh, up to the day of the inauguration, I assume the RNC would select his replacement. Correct. Who might they select? Mike Johnson, Nikki Haley? I can rule those two out right now. Your thoughts, please. I don't know. Uh, let's see who he picks as a running mate if something happens after that. That might be a candidate. You know, you might want to look to someone like J.D. Vance. you you got to look to a Trumper. He dominates the party. And without Trump, it's still a Trump party. And someone has got to be, if they get to that situation, who will, be, who will be acceptable and actually enthusiastic, enthusiastically
2: so to the Trump base. Well, if if he wants to, well uh, Trump base, be, if the Republican Party wants to keep the Trump base in the East Why not Stephen Miller? <laughs> 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 he fits right into him. I mean, you yeah. know, talking, <laughs> well, he does. <laughs> I, I don't. Yeah, he, I, I, he checks every box, but he checks the biggest one. He's racist. As, or how about as, that you know, holocaust you know, you know. dinner
1: that he had lunch with or dinner with at Mar-a-Lago? Oh, Nick yeah. oh yeah, or yeah, 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 Nick Fuentes.
2: Yeah, yeah. In yeah. Kanye Yeah. I love. I love the the the, the Jews that support Trump. In that uh, they don't like. What Ilian Omar says, and Trump, what you know, Nick Fuentes. All right, goddamn it, I've had <laughs> enough. You know, I mean, it's just like you, you, again, you can't. The secret to life is you can't get mad about this because it'll ruin your life. But I, I'm going to tell you, it's out and out hilarious. It is, and and the 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 the, the most hilarious. Non aware people in the world are Jews for Trump. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus
1: Christ. Well, Will in Arlene, Arlington, Virginia, right across the river from me, says, You guys have talked about how important state parties can be. Uh, you know, people like Ben Wickler in, uh, in uh, Wisconsin. A lot of state Republican parties, Arizona, Michigan, Pennsylvania, are broke or in debt or engaged in ferocious infighting. Will that affect the elections in 2024, James? No.
2: It might, the Michigan Republican Party has disintegrated. It looks like Arizona right. is the same. Uh, and, and we have some strong ones. One of the things that uh, we'll try to do is maybe get Ben on or, you know, maybe have a, a show with a, several party chairs because, I mean, most people come up to me and they want to help, they want to do something, but they can't leave. Maybe they, they, they have programs where people can do right, call-ins right. to write postcards or something. I, I, we, we, we should We, we should. That. Maybe
1: have Ben and the Virginia State Chair. That would be two two yeah, two great be, guests. Yeah. Um All right. Right. Jake in Whidbey Island, Washington, uh, ask, uh, that's, that's, that's Bob Mary's territory. Why are so many Democratic pundits confused by the fact that Trump's malfeasance is not reflected in the polls? The Trump right has successfully created a propaganda media ecosystem that doesn't allow facts to penetrate. Uh, Penetrate? Am I wrong, Jake? You're actually onto something. And here's the difference: you know, the mainstream media is larger, but the mainstream media says, "Well, it's it's not totally on the one hand, on the other hand." But if they criticize one, they want to sort of criticize the other. You know, something the Trump media, Fox News—they uh, have no such inhibitions. They are just into propaganda all the time, and uh, you know, and and it works. It really does. And there, I know people who wonder seriously who were involved in the Nixon impeachment. They doubt it could have happened if Fox News had been around back then.
2: Yeah, and, and the other thing is, and of course, I'm very big on this. The the mainstream media, I guess, you know, that's whatever we are, it, it normalizes this. It, it, <laughs> it, I mean, like, okay, so they published the Kellyanne Conway op-ed. I don't know. It, like, normal to take to the paper and talk about how great Trump is to women? Uh, and, and there's no editors know to say that within 72 hours of this, he was decided that he raped someone? I, I mean, there's no way that uh, I could go on a uh, conservative site and talk about how uh, Bill Clinton was— a Icon of what a you know pristine story book marriage was, <laughs> but that's what she did. <laughs> right? and it's so normal. Well, you pick a woman, and these are the strengths, and these are the weaknesses, and you pick up, and these are the strengths, and these are the weaknesses, and you know what's really undervalued is just this tremendous weight, his his unbelievable respect for women. I mean, anybody's ever heard him talk? I mean. Uh, blood coming out of her eyes and uh, peg and look, I, I mean, it, it, I don't want to go through the whole thing but that, therein our friend, that's is. the problem. When You want a straight face and, you know, well, we gave her space uh, she told us what she thought and we're very open and that's great and I think you should have different points of view, but just one right. is like, come on come on
1: It is, and they have normalized it. Sam in San Jose, California, notes the inspector general was investigating a 2018 complaint. I sort of remember this, that the Trump White House was essentially a huge pill mill. Why hasn't the media picked up on this? I'm outraged. Why aren't the Democrats picking up on this? And to quote the great Carville, they should be picking up on this like, quote, humping
2: this like a young dog on an old furniture, end quote. Hey, Sam. (laughs) Well, if uh, I said I'd like to come back as a Republican billionaire, because you don't really have to be smart. <laughs> Excuse me, Admiral Stevens, but I want to come back as <laughs> a Navy admiral. <laughs> if this guy That's, was an admiral, you're talking about you know, Ronnie, Ronnie Jackson, Ronnie Jackson now admiral.
1: distinguished member of the House of Representatives, as in not right, R- right, and
2: a retired right. Navy admiral. Let's let's raise a, Let's All raise right. a Jesus. glass
1: to Ronnie Jackson.
2: Or, Seven or eight? Was it? But, but let me ask you a technical question. Was, was it an IG report or was I, it the Navy? I don't issue, remember, James.
1: I remember the issue, but I didn't. I, I don't I do know remember if it was it. An IG or the Navy. It, or, it,
2: uh, it, I don't either. I, somehow or another, I think I remember that I the, the Navy did it. But but I, Sam, it doesn't we'll get matter. back to you on that next week. In, I promise.
1: The, um, no, it doesn't. Um, Gordon in Norwood, Michigan says, "I know that Michigan's electoral votes are in jeopardy. Jeopardy, given the ongoing war in Gaza, uh, is it a lost cause? If so, could Florida be in play? How about Texas?" Gordon, you, you, there's a problem, but I think you're somewhat exaggerated. Uh, I, there is a large Muslim population in Michigan, and they are upset with Biden on the Israel Gaza war. At some point. They may find out about Donald Trump's views, which would be far more hostile to them than anything they don't like about, about Joe, Joe Biden. Uh, I think Michigan is still a toss-up, lean Biden-slightly state. I don't think Florida or Texas are.
2: Well, I, I, I will disagree here. The war is killing Biden. Just killing him, and, and you're, it's killing among our voters, and we think about that in Key State and Dearborn, and, and but these are really hardworking people. And it, so we think it's just the, the people in Dearborn and the kids at the University of Michigan is the problem. It's way, way deeper than that, way deeper. It's killing us with black voters. And I and I c I, I can't unring the bell. I could go back and argue this back and forth. Biden is being profoundly hurt he is. by this war. I agree. Politically. I mean, profoundly hurt. And it's not isol- it's not an Ann Arbor Dearborn problem. All right? It's it's a problem everywhere. It's a serious an Appleton, Wisconsin problem. all right? It it's it, it, it's it's Carolina, everywhere that you look. Yes, and they're gonna have to if, if this war is still if they're in Gaza if they're still bombing the shit out of Gaza and the Democratic convention don't go, it's gonna be very 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 ugly. And Blinken and and Biden have gotta tell Netanyahu the way the cow ate the cabbage. But th- th- this is a this is a this is not an isolated problem. It's a problem across the board. It is not just a problem with educated young kids and, and uh, American citizens of Arab descent. It's much deeper, much more frown- profound and much more dangerous And they're not. Of course, Trump's horrible. He would he, he told B he'd do anything he wanted. I mean, there's it. it just give them a blank check. And, of course, you remember that the great Abraham Accords. <laughs> they just, <laughs> That's just forgot one, one thing. just my favorite thing in history. The Abraham Accords. But,
1: there's, only one thing, there's only one thing they forgot.
2: The, <laughs> the Palestinians. Palestinians. Right. They, they cut the Palestinians out the deal, but on October 7th, 2023, the Palestinians cut their way back into the deal. And it was all a money-making deal. It was MBS and Jared and the Bahrainians and the Qataris and... You know, Netanyahu and the money was going to go from the Qatari's to Hamas because they had everything under control. You know, they were issuing work visas in the northern Gaza border. And we're paying, the, we're paying a horrible price. And it's going to actually, right now, the issue is benefiting Trump. It is. And you just want to... Go, uh, you know, I feel like going on television and, and just doing a screaming at people for two minutes. What the fuck are you thinking? And, and but it's it's hurting. <laughs> there ain't no doubt about that. It's hurt.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, no question, James. Our final question is from Jeff, and great first name in Saint Pete Beach, Florida. He, he says, I think he's talking, you tell your buds in Biden land to get Taylor Swift to write a song for Biden, like Sinatra did for JFK. What else
2: can Biden do for the youth folk? You know, I, I of course, think that Taylor Swift is like, one. Of, you know, it's kind of a remarkable story. And I, I love of romance with, with Mr. Kelsey. By the way, Taylor Swift was from Berks County, Pennsylvania. Yes, she was. Which is a, it's a kind of red county. It
1: is. Right? I think it, it went. It, um, uh, it went.
2: It, I thought it went for Trump at least it, in sixteen. I looked yeah. it up. It did. Yeah. It went, but 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 it, well, it wasn't like. But, but yes, in you just have to know. I think Reading, I always heard, and my visual observation concern is has the highest number of bars per capita.
1: Oh man, so I think there's the some country. places in Wisconsin and some
2: places, College towns no, Again, yeah, no, <laughs> I, right? I, I, I'm not going to argue, but that that was that was part of we, the we ought to do research in that, James. <laughs> yeah, but we should oh, uh, bars uh, per city. Maybe it on on street research. Right. research. Right, I know Shreveport is high for churches per <laughs> capita, but but at any rate, well, but my point is, and he went to the University of Cincinnati. It's been just hardly went to this is a great school. Don't get me wrong. The Bearcats. He, he played right. for Brian Kelly.
1: He played for Brian well, Kelly. And, and she she and, yeah, actually uh, met uh, Andy Reid well before she ever knew Travis Kelsey when he was the coach well, of the I, Philadelphia I, Eagles. I,
2: I, <laughs> uh, again, that you can say. I happen to think they are. Like, I like him as a football player. God kill killed me. I bet on Baltimore. He had 11 receptions. I wish he'd have broken no, up no, with him before the game. She,
1: you know, the right wing tells us she's a distraction, James. She's she's distracting his game. He <laughs> happened to break the—he he broke the all-time <laughs> the record. He, he, a, he beat Jerry Rice's yeah, record. Right. A
2: receiver, yeah. But, but that son of a bitch is not distracted. I want to get out of oh, the way. Well. <laughs> and the brother, you know, was all pro center for the Eagles yeah. forever. And they seemed like a, a a really nice family, yeah. and uh, you know I don't I, I don't get it, but that you know the the University of Cincinnati is right now at the top of the of the you know snobby people. Stupid, stupid, Jesus! Don't don't, but you know, don't get mad, don't you're, get even. You're trying to you're trying to get amused yourself in that. I can see. I mean, you start, then you try to pull back a little bit. It's not easy. <laughs> <laughs> it just cuts you. You have to be amusing. <laughs> Berks County, Pennsylvania, and the University of Cincinnati are conspiring to <laughs> make everybody transgender. Shit. Huh? <laughs> and now, of course, I just have to mention this is Trump is now promoting Bud Light because <laughs> he has $5 million worth of stock in it. The one thing that ain't, Paul. you can say politicians, politics are more important than anything else. But Trump is nothing trumps his money, and he's getting ready to lose a lot of it. Judge and Gorian's getting ready to drop a fucking ham on him, like you ain't gonna believe.
1: Well, but this whole thing maybe this whole left wing conspiracy may be exposed because Tucker Carlson is over in Moscow, and so he, you know, he's working with the Russians. And so keep, uh, just uh, you know, keep your uh, your eyes open. Tucker's on the job. Uh, All right, listen, keep those letters coming in. We love them. If we didn't get to them this week, we'll get to them next week. So thank you very much. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicsworldroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Now, following this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you check out the links to our sponsors, The Washington Post henson shaving and express vpn and our episode show notes we thank you for supporting them because when you do it helps make this podcast happen now to keep up with us subscribe to politics war room on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you listen you can also find other shows you might enjoy on the Politicon YouTube channel or when you search Politicon on your favorite podcast sites. And remember, please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our War Room planning.
0: Go to shopify.com slash now to grow your business. No matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early. So everyone can go home on time. There's Granger offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts. So you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus,